We have a lot of guests here today. Yeah, man. This is going to be a fun one. Uh, welcome to the No On 15 All Cast. It's your boy, Seven Cs. And tonight, uh, I think this is going to be the end of our heist series. And I can't do it alone because we're covering a classic and a remake. And it's the taking of Pelham 123. So the original is 1974. Remake that we're talking about is 2009. And yeah, before we get into it, let me introduce the guests. Uh, we got. Mr. Frank Mendoza from Silver Screeners Podcast. What's up, Frank? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me back on. This is going to be great. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, we got the awesome Antonio from the Cult Worthy Podcast. He's back, too. Hey, how's it going? Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. And my co-host, uh, Great Scott. Hola. Estoy aquí. I'm finishing Butterfly Effect. <laughs> awesome the wait that, that movie has a lot of sequels is it the one with ashton kutcher or the one with okay all right just the first one okay nice all right cool um and yeah so let's get into it real quick uh how was everyone's week i know frank you were mentioning you just flew across the country pretty much so how's it how's that man Ooh, sorry you just froze a little bit but yeah i just got in uh just a few few hours ago actually i'm I'm home now in massachusetts but we came in from uh from california so about four or five reschedulings but finally stepped foot back in new england soil so it feels good to be home back in the land of snow and ice so <laughs> wait isn't it snowing <laughs> over there too well, that's just the thing it was snowing up there too so <laughs> out of the frying pan into the fire <laughs> wow that's crazy man how about you antonio how's how's your weekend been Hey man, it's been great just uh recording podcasts, releasing podcasts, and finding time to actually do my day job in in the no. times in between. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, I hear you. It's it gets hard, man. Yeah, uh, I feel you, man. For me too, it's been a little a little uh busy. Uh, I'll say the highlight of my weekend was we got a new entertainment center. And I know the box says it weighs 135 pounds, but I have to call bullshit. I feel like it must have weighed at least 400 pounds. Uh, brought it downstairs too to the basement with my brother-in-law, and yeah, I, I'm I'm all kinds of sore. That's how I know I'm out of shape because like you know how you start getting pain in different places and shit like when you're older because <laughs> you don't work out no more. Um, so yeah, it, it was pretty bad. Still feeling it, but that was about it, man. And this, of course, I've, I've been looking forward to this uh, for a while. So yeah, been great, man. Scott, how, how about you, man? How's your weekend going? I've watched both those movies in the last two days. That's my whole weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a rush. I had a fine time today for the remake, so uh, it was it was fun. I got some, some interesting notes. So let's run into our flashback segment real quick before we get into the movie. I'm from the future. I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year, back to the, back to the, back to the, back to the year. Uh, the year is 1974 and 2009, but I thought I'd keep it fun because 2009 to me doesn't feel like so long ago, but 1974 is almost like 50 years ago, almost, right? It's like, so it's got to be a lot of different shit. So uh, I asked all the guests to bring some fun facts from that year. 
Anyone wants to kick it off? I got some too, but I'm curious to hear what you guys got. So anyone can jump off with one. Milk was a dollar fifty-seven a gallon. <laughs> that was my backup. <laughs> I was going to try and jump in first. Uh, no, mine is the year that Stephen King released his first novel, which was That's Carrie. Right. Which I mean, great novel, great movie, and kind of just kicked off. I think the legacy of him and the Palma just a couple years later. So that's mine. Nice. Yeah. That, that's definitely one that, uh, that's crazy when you think about it. Cause he's come out with so much stuff. He's, he's like prolific, you know? Um, right. To know that that's when it started. Um, how about you, Frank? The one that I got is that 1974, that's the release of Godfather 2, which was the very first sequel to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. I like to think the fact that I was born in 1974 might have had something to do with it, but probably irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> I've always nice. felt responsible for the Watergate scandal. That was only a few months after I was born. That's right. Yeah, that's another one, man. <laughs> uh, how about you, Scott? What you got? Rubik's and Skittles were created in 1974. And relative to the movie... They used to drop n bombs in the movies like they didn't give a fuck. <laughs> That's true. true. <laughs> That's true. Very, very true. <laughs> no, this one's a perfect example. Hector Elizondo, dude, dropped a nasty one. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. All right. I, yeah. I, I had I heard some of the same ones you guys mentioned. One of the ones is uh Blazing Saddles came out that year. It was the top grossy movie of 74. You also had uh Towering Inferno and uh for the kids, you had Benji and uh, Herbie Rides Again. So that was 1974. <laughs> I think it was the, the popular, one of the popular songs that year. I think it was Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were. Like, I feel like that's that's been parodied in a bunch of stuff uh, since. But, like, you hear that song playing or whenever there's some kind of uh, romantic moment happening. Come and Get Your Love by Redbone. It's another song, popular in 74. Great song. Yep. And uh, The Hustle was a big one, too. Yeah, yep. Uh, Dancing Machine by Jackson Five. That, uh, that's another one. And yeah, that's the the last one I'll mention real quick is, and I don't, I've never done this before, but fondue was big, I guess, in '74. Like fondue like, and orgies, like they kind of went together. <laughs> <laughs> fondue and orgies. Can't do um, one without yeah. the other, apparently. <laughs> But yeah, I guess uh, yeah, th those are all good ones. Uh, thanks everybody for mentioning those cool little facts. And uh, I got one relative to the time era. Like this was edgy back then. Cindy okay. Wood was Playmate of the Year. Ooh, Playboy. Well, with a name like that, you kind of like have to yeah. be. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's Destiny. She was also it's credited the... with the title song of Gogo Thirteen. Me and Gogo Thirteen. Like she sang the song. I thought that was a weird one too. Year. Oh, nice! Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's crazy. That was I didn't it. know that. Seventy-four. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Frank too. So there, there you go, everybody. Seventy-four. <laughs> nice. Yeah, probably man. the All next right. best thing next to Redbone's song. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, uh, let's run into the wheel names real quick. So. Today, one of these lucky contestants will win right here on Wheel of Names! Okay! 
So does one of okay. these guys have to do one and the other's got to do the other? Well, what's uh, <laughs> it's the same story, sort of. So I think we just do one. Yeah, you know, for mm -hmm. the sake of time. Now, who's going to do it is going to be fun and how they're going to do it. So let me share the screen here. And, uh, let's see. Let's see what they think. So I'm thinking it could be Frank as Frank, Antonio as Antonio, or it can be Frank as Robert Shaw, like your best impression <laughs> of Robert Shaw. Or Antonio as John Travolta. <laughs> Sorry. He's like, I don't do impressions. Oh, I totally do impressions. Are you kidding me? Have you not listened to my show? Of course. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to spin it, and we'll see who it is. You guys ready? Who's Robert All Shaw? Right. Robert Shaw is like, isn't he Bad Mr. Guy. Blue? Yeah, yeah, and he's and the, he's also yeah. Quinn from Jaws, so just do it as Quinn yes, Jaws. Jaws. You, yeah, you can do it as Quint. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome, actually. I should put that better. All right, here we go. Oh. <laughs> Just good old Antonio. I like it. <laughs> All right. So Antonio is our lucky winner of the 30-second challenge. Uh, right. I've got my own timer because I never see yours. Oh, can you can you see it right now? Uh, yep, I see it. Okay, fine. All right, but yeah, you got your own timer. That's fine. I got my own timer. Scott, you want to give him a three, two, one? When you're ready, you ready? Whenever you are. Yep. Three, two, one. Okay, so we're in New we're in New York City, right? And then these guys are trying to get money from the city, so they take over the Pelham One Two Three subway car, and then Walter Matthau has to negotiate with them and deal with the mayor and all this bureaucracy to get those guys their money in the meantime they have an exit strategy to get out without being discovered and in the end a sneeze gives everything away and that's the story in 30 seconds that's quite good <laughs> holy shit <laughs> what's your rate what's your rating c very impressive <laughs> <laughs> I get the uh, Sandy stamp of approval from Greece. <laughs> um, no, that was awesome, dude. Thank you so much for doing that, Antonio. Uh, yeah, that was, that was amazing. Um, so I want to ask Frank real quick. Let's jump into the 1974. Take it to Pelham, one, two, three. Never seen it before. What'd you think, man? Okay, the very first thought that went through my mind within the first few seconds of the film's opening was the opening score during the opening credits. The music it was this atonal wind instrument kind of a thing that screamed hi we're the 1970s it was just extremely it was very endemic endemic to that time um i do have to laugh also because i remember you had said to me over messaging that that it was dated and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah no so i made a few notes as far as how it was dated. Um, I think one of my first, when my, my, after the music, after my first thought about the music, my second thought after seeing all the long shaggy hair and all the guys was all I could think of was the Simpsons episode when Homer grows his hair back thanks to that tonic and he's running down the street and the neighbor yells at him, get a hair, cut you <laughs> That's all I could think about. <laughs> I also thought that Hector Elizondo, I was like, come on, this is the nice guy from the Princess Diaries. This is the hotel <laughs> guy from Pretty Woman. And here he is, Hold you know, me. grabbing the leg of this woman. And like you said, you know, the, the racial slurs and the all of it. It was like, 
okay, I guess you can act after all outside of Gary Mash. <laughs> <laughs> but so those were my initial impressions was, you know, like, oh, there's Hector Elizondo and oh, wow, the music and, you know, a Simpsons reference that works. But um, I think my general impression, first of all, I would give it a thumbs up. I would uh, with with some caveats. First of all, um, I mean, it's funny because I was reading Roger Ebert's original review from 1974, mm-hmm. and he was referring to the depth of the characters, and he was referring to the fact that they were written with substance. These were not just cardboard cutouts of, you know, uh, your archetypal villain, your archetypal, you know, good guy, and the whole thing. And I'm not going to say that I thought the characters were shallow, but I did think that a good handful of them were really just dumb as a stump with some of the things that they were saying and some things that they would do. I'm sorry, if I'm sitting on the subway in New York City and some guy whips out a machine gun and says, I'm taking you all hostage, the fact that half of those hostages burst out laughing. I mean, yeah. I get it. It was 1974. I mean, we are talking a, a very pre-9-11 world, but still, I don't think if anybody pulls a whole teed uh, you know, on me, I would not... Uh, my reaction would not be one of laughter because of derision, maybe laughter out of nervousness, but not laughter out of, you know, right. You look like such a moron. Um, no, I think I, I like, uh, some of the excuses that they were coming up with. One of the passengers stood up and she said, I got a very important appointment. And he said, sit down. And she says, ah, oh, shit like that. And mm-hmm. I said, was that the prostitute who did that? Uh, who said that? they alluded so, to the fact that, yeah, they just said she was a prostitute. Yeah, <laughs> she's billed in the end credits as the oh, that was the other thing was the end credits the fact that nobody had names they were referred yeah. to I had that I, I wrote it down because I wanted to make sure the maid the mother the hooker the old man the hippie and then particular piece of cringe the homosexual oh and Jesus it's, it's like that's how the character is listed yeah. in the end yeah. credits and it's like oh, okay they didn't say the end bomb um, in the credits say, though, after, that's what I was gonna uh, say no. like, they could have done worse honestly then oh yeah, they certainly no, could have well yeah. I'm glad you said that Antonio I'm glad you said that because the uh, review in the village voice the review in the Village Voice uh, dropped the uh, the three letter F word, referring to. And I'm reading this. I'm like, this was in a professional publication. Wow. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Forty nine I mean, years ago, yeah. it's like, yeah. wow. Yeah. yeah. But uh, my general impression was that it was an enjoyable ride. No pun intended. The dialogue was laughable. Some of the characters were, you know, mm-hmm. despite what Roger Ebert may say. And yes, he was the professionally paid film critic but i don't know I, I i didn't see much depth to the uh to the characters i was actually surprised because i thought walter Matthau would have a lot more to do but i think that's because i saw the 2009 version first mm. and in the 2009 okay. version gaba has that whole backstory about how right. he you know accepted the bribes over in japan and none of that was in the original so basically no. it was walter Matthau just his facial expressions ranged from A to B and his line delivery was just I'm not going to say his line delivery was flat, but it just wasn't very, uh, yeah, it wasn't know, a lot of, I think just kind of taking into consideration what you're saying, because I, I guess you would look at it differently based on the order of watching these films. Like, especially if you've never seen either one before. So, but before we jump too far ahead real quick, Sky, have you seen this before? The original? No, I never watched anything from the seventies. I fucking hate everyone from then. <laughs> 
<laughs> like Frank said, look at them. Dude, Frank's in the room, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I'm saying I agree Frank? with you. I said, like Frank said, look at all of them. <laughs> mm. They're ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but, okay, so did you enjoy the movie, though? Yeah, I did. But like okay. Frank, I saw the first one or the newer one first. And then that's why I oh, said okay. I, I've never seen it when we were mm-hmm. looking for stuff to make the schedule. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm surprised how close it was to the remake, you know, aside from the Wall Street. Angle. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and Tony, how about you, man? I mean, you know me. I'm an old soul. I had a dad that like raised me on this shit. We've talked about that in our Omega Man and Charlton Heston episodes that you've done with me. Mm-hmm. I grew up on Walter Matthau movies of the 70s like this and Hopscotch and The Laughing Policeman. So this was on regular rotation when I was a kid. So when mm. I finally saw Reservoir Dogs at like age 12 or 13, like a year after it came out on video, yeah. I was like, oh shit, Tarantino's obviously seen Helen 1, 2, 3 because we got mm-hmm. Mr. Blue, Mr. Brown. You know, it just was like the introduction to how we would see Tarantino in the future of picking all the things he loved from movies of his era growing up and putting them into his movies. And so Mm -hmm. to me, that makes another special connection of, you know, this is kind of like a Reservoir Dogs on a train situation. But you've got the way I look at it with this film. It's a battle of wits between Matthau and Shaw. They're the two like smart people. And they each have a crew of fucking dumbbells <laughs> as their guys. Mathau has to deal with the bureaucracy of the mayor. And he has to deal with the bureaucracy of the people in the train station, like the Metro police. And then Shaw has to do what he does with all of his dudes who are not the sharpest tools in the box. Like they really both have these things going against them. Because if they didn't have either of those things holding them back, it would be a real battle of the wits. And that's kind of what I like about the 1970s one is that you have a real investment between the two main guys, your main protagonist, your main antagonist, and what they have to deal with to get their plans to work. That's why I think the underlying message of this movie is, is you've got bureaucracy on the left, you've got incompetent gangsters on the right, and then a bunch of just innocent people at the edge of a trigger in the middle. And that's why I love this movie. Yeah. Um, and they're all being trash talked too. all the, all the hostages in the train, the way that everybody's referring to them. You know, they're either the 18 people who will get the mayor, his, his vote. Right. hundred percent. Or they're people yeah. who will just have to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're like given no, by the other characters, they're given no humanity at all, which which I, I didn't know if that was deliberate or not, because one of them, one of the hostages at one point in the beginning, when they were first taken captive, said he asked one of the, he asked, I forget which color it was, gray, blue, <laughs> but he said, exactly how much are you getting? A person likes to know his worth. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I thought that was such a, at the, you know, when I first heard it, it such a strange line of dialogue, but given what you're talking about here, I'm wondering if there may have been some kind of a, you know, if it was something deliberate for the for the hostage to say, I want to know what I'm worth, how much you're getting for your, for the ransom, and then for everybody else, you know, the authority, and for all of them to be being very cavalier about their safety. Yeah, I think it's a very excellent point, especially because this is a theme that you see in a lot of New York movies of the 70s, 
if you think there's separation of classes now, go back and watch a movie from the 70s and the separation of classes is even more evident, especially in New yes. York films. You know, like subway dwellers, they're like the bottom, like they're the bottom dwellers. And they make that really evident and they do a good job with it in the in the sequel too, or in the remake of you know up up top you know people are driving nicer cars the mayor says hey drive my limo and garber in that version is like no man i was raised on the subway i subway, feel comfortable yeah. any other way yeah like there there definitely is a division of the classes in both versions and i think in my opinion it's more salty and realistic in the 1970s one you guys are talking about like the slurs and yeah. the realism of the streets to me that gives that movie a lot more credibility than the flashiness of the remake yeah now i'll just say real quick um about the original i think like i love robert shaw in there and like i love Matthau in there i love the secret names i love the simple take of the crime just wanting the money uh it felt more like a heist film also the city felt smaller for some reason than in the remake and I think it because it's more condensed, more focus on just the communication between Matthau and, you know, uh, Shaw's character. Um, I think it definitely is a bit dated. Uh, it still holds up, though, to me. But it's, I, I think it's only dated because of the way, like you said, the classism that takes place in the film and the way, you know, obviously they refer to women in the film, which just cracked me up. And I was like, yo, like this would not fly <laughs> nowadays. They're like, oh, the cop. <laughs> Oh, if the cops a woman on the train, yeah, nothing. She's probably not gonna be able to do nothing, you know. Oh, yeah, she's only working here because she's a woman, kind of thing. And yeah, that's crazy to to hear that stuff. But you know, it's sign of that time in a way. So, and I also think like you were mentioning, uh, Frank, where the old man on the train was talking about his worth. He wants to know what his worth was. I, I also found it interesting that he was like confident throughout the whole deal that things were gonna work out no matter what. Uh, even at the towards the end when it's like a runaway train he's like don't worry it's gonna stop we're gonna be all right like he's almost like yeah i've seen it all uh, we're gonna get through this <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. at that <laughs> point when the train is out of control and the cops are like turn this pitch around mm -hmm. and burn rubber i'm like where's frank trevin <laughs> <laughs> and then the fucking bum slept through the whole ordeal we had 20 seconds already <laughs> Oh, yeah no he kept yeah. saying that has to be a red light that has to be a red light everything's gonna be okay and yeah oh, I, I do see this movie i mean i'm glad i saw it i really am because it sort of feels like not quite a culmination because it was still only 1974 but almost like a second wave or the peak of the new york crime film of the that was so huge in the 70s i mean think of movies like well not necessarily so in New York, maybe I should say urban. You think of bullets. You think of um, Thomas Crown Affair and the French Connection, and and yeah, that's in the you know. Then this one, and then Dog Day Afternoon, Sarpico. I mean, you have all of these urban-based, gritty crime thrillers that went for realism because these movies were written and directed. They were made by people who were the likes of. Norman Jewison and William Friedkin and, uh, you know, Sidney Lumet and all these directors. This is the first generation of makers who went to film school because there was no film school until until their generation. So we're talking, you know, the Lucases, the Spielbergs, the Coppolas. So this is the this is, you know, no, this is the time period that was called the new Hollywood. 
You know, this was when the studio system was completely broken down, guerrilla filmmaking, I guess you could call it in a way. And it's probably not likely to happen again, at least not the way that it unfolded at the time in terms of what they were able to get away with. Yeah. But, uh, but I saw, I saw this as a, as a, as a great addition to that whole trend of the late sixties, early seventies of the, of the prime thriller that had sort of the, uh, the anti-hero, you know, you don't know who for, are you rooting for the, are you rooting for the establishment? Are you glad that the villain's sticking it to the man once again? Or, yeah. This is, you know, this is the era of Vietnam and this is the era of the oil crisis, the gasoline shortage, the recession, Watergate and all that was going on. So New York city at the time was just not definitely not what it is now in terms of getting all fixed up and touristy and all of that. I mean, it was Times Square. That was a dive. Yeah. Have you guys seen the series, The Offer, about the making of The Godfather? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it's relevant to what Frank was saying. I didn't want to interrupt, but I recommend that. Anybody who's interested in what Frank just had to say, you get an inside look at it. I have to catch up, man. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen it yet either. (laughs) Definitely on my list, though. Yeah, that's good. So do you guys... The story in this one, you know, basically the guy's hijacking the train and he asked for a million dollars. What do you think about the quantity of money they asked for? I didn't do the math, so I don't know what a million dollars was in 1974. I'm assuming it's a lot more than a million dollars now, but. <laughs> well, if milk's a dollar fifty seven, right? Yeah. <laughs> let's 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 it's probably worth it. two million. <laughs> yeah. back then. A gallon of milk is two million dollars. Now that sounds about right. No, I mean, three bucks. So so it's like three million back then. No, I actually, I have some. I actually have some numbers. So the average home price was thirty-eight thousand dollars. Monthly rent was like one hundred fifty bucks. Oh Jesus! Uh, Dozen eggs was like seventy-eight cents. Loaf of bread was like thirty-five cents. You know, back in seventy-four. So yeah, I mean, a million bucks gets you, gets you. You know, guess it could get you a lot of stuff. Okay, I just looked it up. $1 $1 million in 1974 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $6,068,357 today in 2023. Yeah. So that's an increase of, of $5,068,357 over 49 years. <laughs> Jesus. Well, had they made uh, I mean... it, they should have invested their money. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean... Here's the thing, though, before we like get into the remake, I think they because I'm not a huge fan of the remake personally, but I Mm -hmm. do like how they did kind of update the idea of the money versus the real goal of the antagonist in the remake. It makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. It is a little out there of a stretch, like with the suspension of disbelief. It's kind of. It's kind of like James Bondy, if you think, but <laughs> but it at least covers up. And I guess what I I bet that's why the writers put that in there. It does cover up any of the discrepancies left in the original. Because in the original, I think that amount of money is what can they carry in their plan? Like mm-hmm. Robert Shaw is so calculated. I think in his mind, he was probably planning, all right, how much can I actually carry if some of my mm-hmm. dudes get taken out? I think there is a foresight in his plan there, where in the remake, mm-hmm. the plan is it's that on the surface, but then ends up being deeper towards the end. So I kind of like how they were able to kind of update that. I think but, in the original 
Sorry to interrupt, Antonio, but no, I was done. Why didn't they do all bundles of hundreds if they could only carry so much? They could have each had like another hundred thousand dollars if some had to take a few bundles of fifties. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, what my does guess he care about the availability? What amount of currency is actually available mm-hmm. physically? Because these are days before credit cards and yeah, everyone stuff yeah. like that. So I would that think was that, the issue. I would think that that's probably what it was. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Okay, so what you what you guys think about the ending when you know we finally see the the plan come you know to fruition and they you know they they think they're fooling everyone but uh, they didn't fool Garber and he kind of figured it out. Didn't fool that bum cop either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly, I think he would yes. probably got the drop on those two guys when they put their guns down to fill their pockets. He could have popped them, and he didn't. That's what I was thinking the whole time. Hmm the cop would have got the drop on him and then that guy's in the fucking cabin i guess he's just concerned about the people on the train indeed yeah, that's true, that's yeah. true. I mean, willis would have fucking killed them both <laughs> <laughs> again i think for the the time that this film came out in we have to remember that these are pre you know m night Shyamalan twist ending day 70s and i'd say even most of the 80s just people would be like okay that's it Psycho, you know, people talked about some of the De Palma films and the Hitchcockian twists. But for the most part, you could just say this is the end, and people would just get up and walk out and be like, Yeah, that was a good movie. I feel ever since like the mid 90s, everyone now has to judge a movie on its finale because we've mm-hmm. had so much gimmicky bullshit in the last 25, 30 years that a modern audience today would watch the, the original and be like, Oh, that's a stupid ending. But it's satisfying. It's satisfying mm-hmm. as a film. Because it didn't have to impress audiences back then. Yeah, story a, a good story is a good story. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's definitely very true, especially like you said, the way modern audiences expect a twist all the time now, which is kind of annoying. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think, think we've been groomed of... for it now. Like you said, the past twenty five years. I mean, Usual Suspects, Memento, Sixth Sense, all that by two thousand alone, and all yeah. those movies had iconic. Mm-hmm. Yeah twists so right now it's just a matter of you know trying to basically filmmakers trying to keep up with each other keeping up with the joneses that's not sustainable who can come up with the more credible or the more the more or the less expected ending you know who can tell the who can have the biggest you know bang moment yeah nice little dry humor at the end of the 74 one yeah i opens the door and he said that that was his son was Walter, um, Walter Matthau's son has said that his father, Walter Matthau, made that facial expression imitating his son whenever his son would imitate Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin. Oh, which okay. I'd have to go back and take a look at it. Yeah. I read that after I saw the movie, and it's and I'm like, Charlie Chaplin. So I, I gotta go back and see it. But yeah, that when he opens the door again and you know, gives him that look of gotcha. And then uh, you get Robert Shaw frying himself. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, he was an idealist. I mean, it works. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> He's an idealist. He felt he was dying for a cause, I guess. <laughs> a pity you don't have. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, they pretty much do it in the remake. The death penalty in the state anymore, so. Yeah. You would think I, a Merc would have fucking like went out shooting or something. <laughs> I guess yeah. Not. I mean, he, he got ate by a big shark. Maybe he, he saw the railroad <laughs> as uh you know, had to kill him too, in a way. So, uh, 
No, cool, man. Any final thoughts on the original before we jump into the remake? Uh, I think that if you are a brand new viewer to this film or like films of the 70s, I think it's a good introductory piece to kind of get an idea of what films are like. I would say if you kind of going on what Frank was saying earlier, if you want to get a taste of what 70s crime films were, I would say watch Dirty Harry, watch this and watch Bullet. If you watch those three films, I think you can cover like what the 70s was trying to do with its crime films. And then you could really appreciate all the other great work that they were making back then when it comes to like this kind of story. Jerry Stiller's got a tight little afro in this one. I know, right? (laughs) He does. (laughs) That fucker's funny. Like he didn't do anything like overtly comedic, but everything he said, I was smiling. It's like, you (laughs) tell him at the arraignment. (laughs) <laughs> oh, now, now the dialogue was like i said earlier it, the dialogue alone for me was worth the price of admission <laughs> yeah i mean that was that was trackling dialogue <laughs> mm-hmm. it didn't always yeah. ring true but that's also part of the charm i guess yeah that's true all right nice man jumping over to tony scott's remake from 2009, starring Denzel Washington, John Travolta, Luis Guzman is in their first spell. Tutoro. And, uh, John Turturro. Uh, Gandolfini. Gandolfini's yeah. in there as a mayor. I'll just start this off before I get into my notes real quick. Something I read that just made me laugh was like a British uh, review of the film when it came out. They're saying it, it's pretty good until... Uh, John Travolta, Tyrannosaurus Rex is his his way onto the set. <laughs> it's like right at the start. <laughs> and he motherfucks it all over the place. <laughs> it's like oh. Scott, you told me that, right? It's like, motherfucker, every uh, couple minutes. That's, yeah, that's they, they, they touched on every version of motherfucker Yeah, between everyone involved. I think the best one was when that young guy goes, that's motherfucking Phil Ramos. <laughs> Talking about Guzman on the... <laughs> Camera, saw my camera. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what'd you think? I know, I know, Antonio. You said it's not your one of your favorites, not very liked. What'd you think uh, on this rewatch uh, to revisiting it? I think you might want to let Frank go first because I got tangent. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Frank. <laughs> uh, well, um, both of these for me were first time watches. So I saw the 2009 first, and then I saw the 74, and the 2009. The way I look at it now, now that I've seen them both versus when I first finished a few nights ago, I would have to say that, yeah, it's glossier. And yeah, it's it's got, you know, it's, it's just a more modern ver- more modern way of editing and, you know, the freeze frames to say how many minutes are left as opposed to the original when they awkwardly inserted into the dialogue. So it definitely has visually a style that I think would attract more current generations you know, more what people are used to. I do think that, see, now I'm wondering if it's the character of Gabber itself, uh, because Denzel, who is one of my acting gods, usually, uh, he was good in this, don't get me wrong, but again, he didn't seem to have a lot of, this wasn't an Oscar movie for him, like Training Day, uh, you know, putting it that way. Uh, you know, he wasn't, he didn't start out tough as nails the way he usually is, you know, spilling the coffee all over himself and awkwardly saying, you know, this is my demotion, this is where I work now and all of that. But Denzel can, as far as I'm concerned, do no wrong. 
I like why I like I would watch him in really anything. So I thought that he was a great his interpretation of the character of Gabra, I thought was uh, was interesting. It brought a whole new layer, like I said earlier, with the backstory of the bribery and his trying to find some kind of personal, if not professional redemption. John Travolta. OK, uh, John Travolta. <laughs> I would have to say that when it comes to his acting and when it comes to his movies, I would say that I <laughs> just like that. Uh, you might call it a love-hate relationship. But I don't know. Uh, like there's good John Travolta and there's bad John Travolta. And then there's neutral John Travolta. You know, you have Grease. You have Lucas Talking. Then you have Pulp Fiction. And then you have The General's Daughter. And what was that other one he did? Look my the bunghole, league? motherfucker. Was that the one? and then of course you have the boy in the (laughs) (laughs) i had to take it back and uh yeah and when he was yeah because at the time he was dating the mother from made is enough and that was around the time he was doing welcome back card and then of course you have battlefield earth from which there was no redemption so seeing him playing the bad guy I was happy i was nervous that it was going to be a retread of his character from pulp fiction like he would have the same mannerisms and he would basically play the same kind of character. But there was, I thought, a decent separation between the two characters as far as what he as far as what he brought to them. As far as the momentum of the film, as opposed to the original, again, with editing being much more quick jump cuts these days. And back then they were more just a hell of a lot more tracking shots and more. You know the zoom ins and the zoom outs and all of the all of those camera tricks that was so that was so endemic to seventies cinema. It's difficult to say which one is a preference because they're two totally different styles. But as far as which film am I more likely to revisit based on entertainment value, based on rewatchability, based on the cast, I'm probably gonna go with the original. Yeah. Oh, I think the I think the two thousand nine has a lot to offer. I mean Gandolfini, I mean <laughs> come on now um i did think one, one other thing i wanted to mention that i thought was really interesting was every time that the subway was moving from point a to point b they had the map on the screen and so you visually saw the red dot and then the and then the dotted line and the red dot you know where it was starting and where it was stopping and all i could think of was wow i remember thinking to myself this we've come a long way since the days of yeah. You know, Raiders of the Lost Stack, where you would see the global map and you would just have the plane going, <laughs> yeah. you know, from Shanghai, China to India to wherever. But um, one last thing, that girlfriend on the laptop, she pissed me off to no end. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my God. This guy has practically a gun to his temple. And she says, I Can't love you, baby. It. And then she says, you're not going to say it back. And he's like, I'm not. I kind of got things going on here. And she's like, we have enough time to say, blah, 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 blah. It's like, shut the lid, shut the lid. Just shut the lid. Log out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that live stream was working, man. That was uh, <laughs> magic. That was, that was the science fiction part in the movie for me. Out in the subway, especially <laughs> back then, internet he tethered was, his fucking yeah. laptop to his BlackBerry or whatever the fuck was out back then. <laughs> tethered his razor, uh, mm-hmm. razor phone. <laughs> What about uh, you, Scott? What do you think of the the recent one? Yeah. Well, what I wrote down was Die Hard Three was a great heist based on the scale of the robbery and distraction of the bombings would have duped real police, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, that's what I think of when I see this movie. Mm. 
Plus, I always like the way Bruce Willis said motherfucker in that one, you know? <laughs> it's relevant to this movie. There's too much of it. Yeah, you're, you ain't lying. I, I didn't care about the the two Middle Eastern, or not just European dudes that were in the crew. Yeah, They were just, they were throwaway people. They, they should have gotten they were. shot in sooner. Yeah. I Completely. don't even know if shot is a word. Shot. They should have been <laughs> shot sooner. I like shot better. Mm-hmm. We'll go with yeah. shot. It's shot. That shit was shot. I did have a couple other things. Like one day I want to see if I can eat the whole rotisserie chicken in one sitting. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm going to fuck you and your greasy ass, motherfucker. Since the last time I saw this, I picture the wife in my head as mentally unstable because of the way she's going on about the milk. Uh-huh. I see her like with bad teeth and fucked up hair and smoking and shit. <laughs> like she just can't be fucking trusted to be left alone and he's got to get home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's, yeah, that's in my fucking notes, dude. You guys didn't see it that way? <laughs> and then he bought the cardboard half gallon of milk because it's not cheaper. And then the fuckers don't close easy. Why would you get that? <laughs> Nobody fucking buys that shit. And then there was one. There was one black fellow from the 82nd Airborne. I yes. Was, I uppercut smoked that guy right in the face with a shovel. He said he was in the 82nd Airborne. He tried to oh, step no. at me. He tried to step to me at work and he got hit with a shovel. So those are oh. my notes from this one. <laughs> nice <laughs> I would have posed as a passenger during this heist if I was the ringleader I wouldn't have been involved in it but I would have been on the train to supervise and th- see that things go well uh-huh. because he's getting paid off of the fucking the electronic heist you know oh, so he doesn't right. have to be involved the fucking mercs could get the two million ten million dollars and he mm-hmm. never gets caught it could have still played out he could have put a fucking mask over someone and a voice changer and done it remotely and spoken to them because they did set up that fucking relay thing. Yeah, I mean, but then There's we been a remake. the line, lick my bunghole, and <laughs> what, what would this movie be without that, that line? Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. They were too busy with that kind of shit to think about. <laughs> yeah. Real quick, I, I just got... <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> That's awesome. I got Denzel, John Turturro, James Gandolfini were were pretty solid. I definitely felt like this was a Tony Scott film with the shots and the transitions that you see. And um, I, I'm not sure, though, if I like Garber played by Denzel more than the Mathow version. I just feel like he's a little neutered, even though he does have more backstory and, you know, he's going through something. Um, you, you just kind of get the feeling in the original that Walter Mathow is actually in charge, you know, more than Denzel. And Denzel's just kind of like a bystander and has to be put in that situation and deals with it and it doesn't it feels more a little more like a terrorist movie in a way uh than a mm-hmm. heist film i know there is like like you said antonio the attempt to suspend my disbelief for the banking side of the story is it's just a little too much for me and i do understand that the real heist is you know Ryder trying to drive the market down so he can drive up gold uh somehow which is fucking i, I, I can't mm-hmm. think too much i don't want to waste my time uh with that and the but the end of this film, I will say, is a little more cinematic, uh, with the city in the backdrop and the way Garber is being forced to shoot Ryder. So I get that. That that was a little bit probably the strongest point. And it's at the end, so by then it's a little bit too late for me. And I'll say my favorite part 
or my favorite line was the mayor going to Garber and telling him that he went to bat for the city and that they were going to have his back and they'll go, he'll go bat for him with his bribe situation mm-hmm. pretty much. So I thought that was kind of cool, cool way to end it, but yeah. So yeah. transit cops, they can shoot people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. The transit yeah, cops in Salt Lake city carry guns. I don't see why they wouldn't be able to. <laughs> yeah. All right, Antonio, let's go. Let's go with the, the view. Okay. So, I mean, like I said, it sounds like I was a, only one that saw the original first. No, I did, I did the too. First one. Oh, you did I too. Did okay. Too. So yeah. yeah, and I saw the the new one in the theater. And my first thought saw in the theater is one: this should not have been a Tony Scott movie. I love Tony Scott. Tony Scott makes movies where everything has to be moving all the time. And the whole point about Helen One Two Three is that everything fucking stops. <laughs> and so he's zooming the camera around a train that's not going anywhere, you know? So like you're, you're making a fucking transit station, almost like a CIA underground headquarters with the big lights display and the cameras zooming all around. And it really kind of breaks the tension that it's trying to build. It works great in films like unstoppable where the train (laughs) is unstoppable, you know, (laughs) but this was not the movie for Tony Scott in my opinion. That's just my, and I love Tony Scott. This was, I can only say this is like the one Tony Scott film that I actually poo-poo on the most because I feel like he was the wrong man for this job. But he did a great job with what it is. You know, it's just, it, I don't think he's the right guy for the job. My second biggest thing, and like I said, I hadn't seen this again since the theater and it re-established this idea. The two leads should have switched. Denzel should have been the fucking man in the train and Travolta should have been Garber. If you go back and you watch <laughs> Travolta in, let's say, Primary Colors or Phenomenon or Mad City, like he does play that kind of beaten down character really well. And I think that would have been the energy that that part would have needed to be more convincing. White man's burden. White man's burden. Than the way that Denzel plays it. Because Denzel... He's a great actor, but like Frank said, this just doesn't capture the energy he's capable of. It almost feels like it's a forced neutering of his performance, like he said. But if you would have had him as the Robert Shaw character, if you would have had him as the main guy, I mean, he could make any of those lines that we laugh at Travolta trying to deliver sound fucking menacing. So that's always Mm. been my opinion of this particular film is that the two leads should have switched places. Yeah, that's a great point, man. I will say about Travolta's performance that it's, this is probably the most Nick Cage Travolta performance in a way, just just with the way he delivers his dialogue and uh, those moments where he's excited. It came a little cagey to me, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, man. Uh, what was it? What was his line that he kept saying? Uh, I owed God a death. That was that was like his famous line in this film, right? Mm-hmm. That's some prison shit. He, and he owes Antonio some money back for watching it the theater. Yeah. <laughs> what I well, thought man, was good, guys. <laughs> Antonio was saying about the action and the like cinematography or whatnot. I thought they did a good mm-hmm. job of putting you in the position of the hostage the whole time when the train was yeah. stopped. It was always from their perspective. You're looking at the hijackers like you're you're trapped on the train yeah that's true and i think 
they were kind of forced into the kind of anonymity of the henchmen of Travolta and like Louis Guzman. I feel like Louis Guzman probably had more scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor because his oh, part does man. seem really, really anemic. Like it's just been drained. You know, because he almost... is, yeah, he is kind of like the Martin Balsam character of, of yes, the original. Exactly. But I get where they're coming from. They can't fucking say Mr. Blue, Mr. Brown, Mr. White, because anyone who hasn't seen the original will be like, oh, they're ripping off Reservoir Dogs. Exactly. I can see that being a discussion in the writer's room. We're like, well, fuck. Okay, well, they'll just make them these two European guys and just, we'll never give them names. They'll just be disposable characters because Tarantino's fucked us with Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, man. I think that hits her right in the head. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does. I really like Martin Balsam's character too in the uh, original. I think he's really good. Um, he's just kind of like, but you said nobody was going to get killed, you know. He's kind of like, he was in it, but he was a uh, apprehensive. Uh, he did that really well. Yeah, but he yeah, certainly used those murders to his advantage in the subway. He's pocketing all of that share of the money, but as he's flying out, <laughs> and then he gets okay, home and he's puts it in the oven. He takes this <laughs> paper money, puts it into a sack, and throws it into the oven. Turns on the burner to light the cigarette. But I mean, mm-hmm. okay, that, that, that takes balls. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, but who doesn't want to jump into his bed full of money, right? That was just like the best moment. <laughs> yeah. He jumps in there and he's like. Even the pack with the blood on it, he don't care. <laughs> he didn't care. Yeah, he didn't care. He thought he got away with it's it. It's like a totally made up for his famous <laughs> psycho. That's right? that's what this. That's what the remake is missing too. It doesn't have, it's just like that charm, man. You know the characters, you know, and it's just something you probably can't have just because of the time, you know, and the way, the way the film was shot and the way the characters interact with each other, and just the secondary characters have more depth, uh, even though they might not have you know great lines, but just sometimes, and I think I've said this before on other episodes, like it doesn't always require lines. Sometimes it's just the looks, you know, mm-hmm. and there's so many looks in the in the original. Brown had just a, a ton of shots where it was just him. You you. And you would see him, um, you know, his face. And that that kind of stuff was important. And that kind of stuff sometimes is missing from film nowadays. Like, it's like a totally different person without that porno mustache. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Completely different. <laughs> it is missing sometimes, man. It's Sometimes film just needs to be film. You know, it doesn't require to have a ton of dialogue. And I think sometimes it, it can ruin it. And that's that's kind of what I feel also ruined it with Travolta's interpretation of, you know, the main uh, villain is just he talked too much, man. Robert mm-hmm. Shaw's version, just, you know, only when he needed to talk, he kept it business like he kept it all. He had it all planned out. And Travolta definitely had something he wanted to get off his mind for sure. Took advantage of that. So mm-hmm. I've got one last thing to say about the remake. And I hate doing this because, like, I often give myself a little bit of grief when I get critical about a movie because I really don't do that on my show too much because I've never made a movie <laughs> and I've never written a music score. But the fact that like both Tony Scott and Ridley Scott used Harry Gregson Williams music for everything. And in my opinion, they all sound the same. I, when you think about, as Frank was saying, music at the beginning of the original, mm-hmm. you know, it's got that real seventies. It feels yep, like yep. New York. It feels like, yep a crime yeah. oh. movie where we come in with like this kind of 
techno orchestra stuff that Harry Gregson William does in every single movie that he makes for the most part, it does kind of take you out of the real world and it makes it feel like a glossy, cold, metallic movie. And that's what it ends up feeling like and playing like. So it does kind of get us out of the connection with the passengers. It does get us out of connection with the people in the Metro police where the old one, it seems so real and gritty. The music felt organic to the story. This one was that just, like I said, techno orchestration of an action film in what really should be like a crime drama. So you mean like the funk music in the old one reminds you there's a shitload of blacks on that subway. <laughs> well, I mean, it, just feels, it feels like the subway. It doesn't even have to be black people. It just can feel uh-huh. like, you know, cause the, that's one of the things they talk about. New York being like the melting pot. I feel yeah. like that flute that just keeps playing throughout. Uh-huh. It to me, it feels like the subway. It feels like I'm in not Wall Street. It feels like I am yeah. exactly and where it's trying to. Portray. That's the intention of it. It's not yeah. like trying to be urban, yeah. even back then. Like they didn't do that because, like I said, I don't watch a lot of things from the 70s. Yeah, I mean, if you watch Dirty Harry, which takes place in San Francisco, it's almost got the same kind of music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got like yeah. that. It's got that waka waka guitar in the background and an organ and a pan flute. Like it, it's very, it's, very similar. It, it's more analog, non digital. You know, it's real. Yeah, it was real yeah. people playing real instruments. You know, and that's like, why I say like organic. It, like it feels yeah, like it came it, from a it totally, body. Yeah. So like people would be playing that shit for money on the subway back then. Is that what we're getting at? Maybe not for money. Maybe not for money. Better but... to do. Yeah. <laughs> Just funked out of their fucking mind back then. <laughs> Doing it for uh, love. I got to mention this before I forget. And I, uh, last thing I'll say myself too about the remake is Denzel driving at the end gave me flashbacks of the last time I was in New York with my Uber driver. <laughs> was oh, like, I was scared as fuck, dude. I was like, what are you doing, man? So that's how Denzel drove at the end there. A uh, little PTSD from that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh all right let me bring it back to the future guys if we could somehow harness this lightning channel it into the flux capacitor it just might work we're sending you back to the future okay all right all right all right all right all right it's 2023 i feel like they remake this movie every 20 years so that means it's probably do a remake uh, again you know in the future so if you guys were to redo this story how would you do it? Would you do it? Would you change the setting? Would you keep any of the same stuff? Would you go to a different city? I mean, if you're bending my arm backwards to remake this movie, I would set it like in the 50s. I would make it extra retro mm. so we can get away from computer shit and cell phone shit and really take technology out of the picture. I mean, hell, it would be cool to do this film with literally just two sets. The office with the microphone where Garber is operating and the train, nothing in between. I think it'd be a cool, like, experimental piece with dialogue focusing on performances and story instead of flashbang shit, which everyone likes to do these days. Mm, I like that. Even go, even go back to like the steam engine days, right? You could do that. Go way Using back. Using telegraphs. <laughs> Every, everything <laughs> is more story. <laughs> oh, that's too far. But no, yeah, I like that idea, man. I like that. How about you, Frank? Maybe set in the days of the Pony Express. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding. Um, I think that if I were to redo it, first of all, I would uh, make sure that Antonio's 
was saying, I think conceptually about this a lot, you know, when my mind kind of wanders and I should be thinking about other things. I think about how I would make different movies, how I would make movies different these days. Um, I think the first thing is definitely take the technology piece out of it because I think that the story, I read, I read an article once, maybe about 10 years ago, that's it was a list of, I think, the top 25 movies deemed classic, quote unquote, that would never work today because of technology. And they had all these movies with all these iconic endings that wouldn't happen if people had cell phones or if people had access to, you know, uh, like The Graduate, for example, trying to get to the church before Elaine and her boyfriend get married, like that kind of a thing. So ever since I read that article, I've always been thinking about, okay, so if they were to do a remake of this one or of that one, how the hell would they pull it off? And, you know, nine times out of 10, it's, they can't. So I would say for this one, first of all, remove the technology piece. Secondly, if we're talking about who would be, if we're talking about who would be great in these roles, mm-hmm. I would love to see what Steve Buscemi would do with this. I'm not sure if it would be miscasting or not, but I love him in Fargo. I love him in The Big Lebowski, and hell, I even enjoyed him in Armageddon. So I don't know. I'd be curious to see what he would do with it. I'm not saying that I would. I'm, I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that he'd be my top choice or my automatic go-to, but definitely one I would be curious to see auditioning at least, like if they had this found audition reel, um, mm-hmm. you know, to see how he see what he would have brought to it. Um, I can actually see John Goodman. Uh, in 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 this guy in a in a potential reimagining or reboot if you will as well nice but i'd have to to think about it though to see you know who would play that i would get rid of the boyfriend and girlfriend characters from the 2009 and i actually would keep the uh the drunk woman the bag lady from the original sleeping through the whole damn thing yeah all right how about you scott i'd say up the scale and take over more trains and then just fucking drive them right into each other. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a terrorism plot that you can't fucking stop it. Like that one movie where there's a bomb in the fucking trunk and they don't know which car it is. And they're all driving towards the fucking destination. What movie? Wait, 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 wait. Which one are you talking about? I don't remember the fucking name of it too. There's someone trapped in the fucking trunk of the car, you know, and the, the whole story is about trying to find out which, which vehicle has a bomb in the car in like the whole city I, i'll look it up oh wait wait you're talking are you talking about you're not talking about source code are you uh no it's not that i thought source okay. code was like gyllenhaal or something yeah it is but they're they're like trying to find where this bomb there is, is a terrorist plot there's a terrorist yeah or you uh, can go like the eagle eye <laughs> and minority report angle mm-hmm. and how they try to stop shit like this before it happens and they're the person's got a one-up on the technology you know you do that too if, challenge you know, tech, future technology trends yeah see um there's definitely that angle i feel like for whatever reason there are, there's always going to be a technological angle but I, I honestly think if you do re- remake a story like this going back to the 80s you could do it because technology wasn't still as advanced and i feel like it's mm-hmm. retro enough even maybe 90s you might be able to get away with it um you know do early 90s because i feel like 90s is getting hot now a lot of people are going back to the 90s with stuff new stuff that's coming out but mm-hmm. you could probably get away with that um yeah as far as casting garber and you know mr blue or Ryder, depending on which villain you're gonna go with which villain name yeah that's a tough one man like it depends i feel i feel like it has to be based on the situation 
doesn't work if they're younger actors, just because it feels like they have to be people that have gone through things. Uh, Javier life. Bardem. Javier Bardem. Oh, looks like the type of motherfucker that has a grudge with the world. That'd, that'd be mm. good. Yeah, he, he would be. Del Toro, maybe Del Toro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Del Toro. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he was a slime bag in the Last Jedi, so. <laughs> put, them, put them both on the train. <laughs> they could work together. They'd have good. Throw Stephen Baldwin in that shit. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> Where the fuck is he? Is he dead? Uh, I don't. I don't know, man. <laughs> I changed my answer. I say we put it in Ireland, and we have the Banshees of Inisherin group get together. You have Brendan Gleeson oh, and Colin oh, Farrell together. There you, and go. you, you have it in oh, the metro or whatever the shit they have out there. Yeah. Colin just Farrell would be time, good. Just... Flinging fingers at each other the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, throwing fingers at throwing each other. fingers at each other. <laughs> that movie's crazy. Uh, good one. Colin Farrell um, looks like uh, a Dragon Ball it. character in that fucking movie. His eyebrows and eyes are all thick and big. He looks crazy. It works. Uh, yeah. it, it, it does work. <laughs> his, his, I, I hope that gets screenplay. Just like the way he was just kept saying, it's not nice. You're not nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> hey, I'd say the same thing to somebody throwing fingers at me. It's my ball. Yeah, yeah. You're the donkey nice. man. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but is there anything you guys could say that you would recommend a little more modern? That's anyway in any way similar. Besides, uh, I know Res- I think Reservoir Dogs. You could say kind of has a little bit of that. Obviously, but it's a little bit older now. Have you guys seen anything newer? That would remind you of this at all? I mean, like what the remake doesn't do well, which the original did, is the intensity of dialogue and the intensity of like character development between the negotiation of Garber and Mr. Blue or whatever Travolta's character is in the remake. There's so much going on in the background of the remake, it gets away from that. So Mm. I like to think of the negotiation films that you see in like the 90s and, and 2000s. I'd say The Negotiator with Samuel L. Jackson mm. and Kevin Spacey. Good one. Because yeah. even though the movie may not be 100% great, in those two going back and forth, that's what the original had between Matthew and Robert Shaw that the remake did not have. So that's what I was kind of missing. So I'd say any negotiation film like that, where you've got two people that want something and they have to work with each other to get it that's the kind of energy that the remake was missing hmm. what about what, what about heat what do you think about that well they spend so little time together it's all cat and mouse which i think is great it's a great movie it's one of my favorite movies but i i think it plays a little bit differently than hmm. what this movie and what this story actually should be okay cool scott yeah, there was that. Uh, I keep thinking about the Dog Day Afternoon behind Frank, but that's old. That's a hostage crisis movie, isn't it? It is, yeah, in yeah, a bank. Yeah, and that's why I keep thinking of that fucking Inside Man, because I was looking oh, at that. Oh, that's the oh, good right, one. yeah. Jody Foster, Denzel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Clive Owen. Clive Owen. Yeah, Clive Spike Owen. Lee. Yeah. Spike Lee, yeah. That's a good one. What about 2020's Bloodshot? More elements of certain films. No. <laughs> did you did you say Bloodshot? Yeah. 
<laughs> I've seen it on its screen. It's got nothing to do with anything. No. Sorry. <laughs> Plus, it sounds like something these two would not give a fuck about. Oh. <laughs> uh, all right. Nice, man. Final thoughts. Would you guys recommend this to people overall? I would recommend both films to someone who has never seen them. Yeah, I would. Uh, if anything, just for the kind of conversation that we're all having right now, but also because they are time pieces, I think, because there are mm. even elements of the 2009 version that just in terms of the technology alone are outdated already. Right. So I would say that I would, I would say that, you know, for good, for a good understanding of depictions of New York city life in the seventies versus however many, you know, 39, however many years later it was, 35 years later, I would say that both are, work, are worth a look for being the time capsules that they are, which is what film, I mean, all film is a time capsule, you know, it captures the zeitgeist of the times. So I say both of them have value in that regard. I would say that if I had to, like, again, if I had to point to one of the, of the two of them and say this, or this one has more working components that do equal the sum of its parts, I would go with the 1974. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, no, John Travolta, ha- uh, Denzel, it has its good points, but overall, I think it just, I don't know, so it, it collapses under its own weight. Mm. Yeah. All right. How about you, Antonio? I mean, I would recommend the original All Day, Every Day. I would say that it wouldn't be a bad idea to do a double feature like we did and watch both of them back to back to cross compare. I mean, I know people who love the remake more than the original because they're younger and that just speaks to their generation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, art is subjective. You do you. That's always been my point. It's my point of the podcast that I do. But um, personal opinion, I would say, if you like the original, watch the remake. If you don't like the original, then don't even bother. That's kind of my final consensus. Mm. Good point, man. Thank you. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. How about you, Scott? Yeah, I mean, if you like... The new one, there's no way you won't like the original. Mm, that's true. And yeah. I think just the conversation we've had in the questions you've raised, it really makes you think like going in the future, how are people going to make movies like this where there's there can't always be that over the top, not even ending, just the fucking motive of the crime itself. Mm-hmm. Can you make a fucking hostage movie where there isn't some kind of big dupe at the end? Yeah. That's true. Very true. Like, what the fuck was that? Oh, John Q. Right. Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. yeah. That's like the best one I've seen. What What can you do after that? Just remake John Q again? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, man. Somebody fucking make a better movie already. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, really, just All the right. fact that we don't have enough to reference, say, oh, well, there's this, this, and this since then. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, there's a lot of copycats, a lot of, like we mentioned earlier, you know, people going out of their way to try to twist everything, you know, at the end and stuff. That that happens a lot, so. Point. It happened yeah. with Air Force One, if you think about it. Even, yes. And that was, you know, Pelham 1, 2, 3 on. On a plane. On, on a plane. <laughs> yeah. Good point, man. Um, they made catch plane. Did anybody see plane yet? No. Maybe that's what we're looking for. <laughs> playing with Rob and watch it after we're done <laughs> um all right <laughs> thanks guys for for everything for everybody's uh you know awesome opinions um 
What do you got coming up on your show, Frank? Well, right now I'm getting ready to wind down my Oscar series. Um, I'm going to be doing an episode this week on Banshees of Inisherin, ironically enough, nice. which what I saw for the first time uh, about Love a week it. ago, and I cannot even begin to praise this movie enough. <laughs> uh, I, I, I won't say anything about the movie. I'll just say that that's going to be my episode coming out uh, this upcoming weekend. So the first the first weekend of March it'll be, and uh, then I'm going to have a I'm going to be reuniting with a couple of former film students of mine, and they're going to come on, and we're going to talk about our Oscar predictions. And that yeah. will go over into Oscar weekend, and then after that, Oscars are done for another year, and I'm probably going to take a look at anniversaries. You know, this year is, you know, you know yeah. 80 years since, uh, you know, Casablanca, you know, movies like that. Nice, man. Awesome. Um, do you want to let people know where they can... Uh reach you and where they can hear you and oh thank you yes uh, you can find me on facebook i have a public film group called silver screeners and it is public so feel free to spread the word uh, and that's the same name as my podcast silver screeners which is on most major podcasting platforms you can also follow me on twitter at film buff 1974 the year it was born the year that one palomonte three was made and on instagram at frank mendoza 1974 and i also co-host a podcast with a friend of mine out in liverpool this one we've been doing now for almost a year it's called movies across the pod and that's on spotify and, and anchor and the usual as well nice awesome man thank you again frank for being on and if you guys have not heard uh, so thank you definitely check it out uh awesome podcast and i've been on there a couple times too so uh Thanks again for sharing everything. Um, and Tony, what you got coming on, man? Oh, we got some fun stuff. So this week we are doing um, a rediscovery episode of a film from 1987 called The Bedroom Window, starring Steve Gutenberg, directed by mm -hmm. Curtis Hansen. And it, to me, it is the film that will change your opinion of Steve Gutenberg as more than just the police academy and three men and baby guy. Like it's, it's a great, <laughs> great film. Double check it out. And then uh, we're just doing a lot of either guilty pleasure episodes or an episode that we have called Growers Not Showers, films that mm -hmm. we didn't like at first and eventually grew to love. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing that nice. with the Derazzled podcast. So yeah, we got some fun stuff coming up. Awesome, man. And uh, where can people catch out your shows? So you can just find me on thecultworthy.com. It's got links to all my shows, all my back episodes and reviews, or on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, under the Cult Worthy Podcast. Yes, sir. Uh, you have another show too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if we're going to talk about other shows, <laughs> I have a relationships <laughs> episode that I uh, pretty much let my 40 plus year old friend who is a woman, she's a MILF. So the show is called The MILF and Me. We just let her just complain about the dating world of, of MILFs here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it's kind of like our therapy sessions that we let people listen to. It's a lot of fun. Nice. I don't mean to be rude. This is your friend. Yes, this is my friend. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude, but honestly, does she talk about like her her liaisons? Of course. <laughs> like in detail? <laughs> in in detail that's not giving away to the people she's involved with. Let's put it that way. But she'll yeah. she'll like diss a dude <laughs> if he sucked. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <That's fucking laughs> awesome. give, it, give it a listen. You never yes, know sir. who you're going home with, man. That's <laughs> Awesome, man. <laughs> hey, thanks, everybody, for being on the show. And, uh, yeah, tune in uh, next week, and we'll see what we got going for you. Yeah. 
And that was uh that was it, y'all. That was the end of this um, little mini series that we did on heist movies. We've got a new series starting next month, and it's gonna be Hero Month. Uh, can't wait for everybody to listen to that episodes, and we'll be a little more regular with our episode releases. So, thanks everyone for listening uh, for the early episodes in this new season, season four. Again, shout out to Antonio from the Cult Worthy Podcast. Shout out to Frank from the Silver Screeners Podcast, and my boy Grace Scott. And uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed this one. For now. It's your boy 7C saying peace out, God bless, and leaving you with a track from 1974. Peace. If you go away on this summer day, then you might as well take the sun away. Oh, wait.